Well, good morning. I want to greet each one of you in the precious name of Jesus, whom we have looked at already this morning about his just measureless, his greatness. Um, how our teacher shared, Russell shared, you know, for centuries, there's, as men have just tried to describe or, or think about or understand who Jesus is in the Trinity, I believe we always, in humility, should realize that that it's far above and beyond what we can fully grasp in our in our humanity. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. I um, believe I have shared from my study in Romans here before. I think I've shared at Wilkesbury, Brother Dale and her family may have heard. So I, th I was thinking about this group of people and you here, you know, a, a snatch here and a little bit there. So as I conclude, um, this is the concluding message on, probably not the book, but to the first section, ending the last half of chapter 8, looking at our glorious hope. I'm going to probably just give a little bit of um, a brief background to set the stage for this message. As Paul was sharing to the book of Romans, giving his... <clears throat> his thesis on the gospel, on the, on the good news of Jesus Christ and how that applies to, um, to us as believers. Starting in chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, he endeavors to bring all men to the understanding of our own sinfulness, that all men, whether Jew or Gentile, are living under the curse of sin, both under the the Adamic nature passed down through us, through our parents, but also under our own choices. Our, we also have sinned. We have fallen away. We have attempted maybe to do good, but all of our good falls short of the glory of God. Chapter 3, verse 21, he brings the, the answer, God's solution to the sin problem. And... Uh, God's righteousness compared to our sinfulness, and that righteousness being revealed through His Son, Jesus Christ. <coughs> Bringing the doctrine of justification, taking sinful mankind, who by faith, faith is brought in there too, believing, trusting, looking to Jesus, when we place our faith, our faith, our belief, when we agree with God that we are a sinner and we agree with God that Jesus is the answer, a miracle happens and we're justified just as if we had never sinned. All of that record against us, all of our uh, sinfulness inherited from, our, from Adam, all of the sinfulness that we have committed, washed and wiped away, made as if it was never there clean before God, pure before, holy before Him, not because of our holiness or our good deeds, but because of what Jesus has done, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine of justification that is made possible through faith. And he goes on through that in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and enters into chapter 6, looking at the doctrine of sanctification. And that is the process of, of the believer that has committed his life to the Lord and has received Jesus Christ into his heart as his Savior. Now he goes on living a different life. 
from his old life. A life that now instead of living for himself, he is living for Jesus Christ. And Paul starts looking into the details of how that works as we move on through the Christian life and the process of sanctification, that of, of growing in the Lord, of walking with God, of learning how to no longer live in sin, following after the passions of our old nature, following after the things that we would normally naturally have done. Rather, we're following after God and doing things that He wants us to do. And he takes a very frank look at that and recognizes in chapter 7 that it's not easy. That it's a struggle. And that every honest Christian will recognize that, it ha it, that, that we have our ups and we have our downs. We recognize that there's a difference between the knowledge of knowing what to do is what is right to do and the actual doing of that right. And the, the struggle, sometimes the almost feeling of hopelessness that I continue to do the things that I don't want to do and I don't have the ability to do the things that I know I should do. The frustration. And he delves into that in chapter 7. If it would stop there, it would be quite discouraging. But he goes on in the beginning of chapter 8 and reveals that it's not necessary that Christians stay there in a hopeless struggle against sin, but that God has provided abundant power to every one of us to live a victorious Christian life. Not because we're going to go and finally get enough of self-will and pour ourselves up with our bootstraps, but because God has provided His power through His Son Jesus and in person through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And then in, as we learn to not, instead of walking in our own strength, walking according to the flesh, which will guarantee failure we learn to walk in the spirit we learn to be led by the spirit and as we learn to walk in his strength and allow his strength to flow through us we begin to experience victory in the christian life and there's a, a real um change of the feel of the book of romans when we hit chapter eight it brings us starting into say yes this is possible yes not by me it is possible to live for the lord and in live in victory. Down to the end of chapter 8, verse, or in the middle there, <laughs> verse 14, he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So you this morning have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. You are learning to walk with God. You're allowing the Spirit of God to, to lead you. You have that relationship with God. You are led by the Spirit of God. He makes a statement, you are the sons and the daughters of God, the sons of God. As Russell asked the question about what, who, this day have I begotten thee, that he is my, my son? Who else has he called my son? And I had to, my mind came right to this verse, and I'm not sure if it's applicable. But here it says that we as followers of God, as, as being adopted into the family of God, are considered the sons of God. Not a spirit of bondage. We're not serving God out of that spirit of fear and bondage, but rather that of, of, a, of a, a son to his father. Abba father, that endearing term. I would call my dad like dad or daddy. I don't know what you called your dad. What was the endearing term to your earthly father? That is what we would relate to or should relate to, to our heavenly father. 
not something that as a, uh, a, a monarch over his subjects, but as a father to his children. That is the position of the believer made possible through Jesus Christ. And he says, now that you have become into that position as children, you receive the benefits of children and that of one side, discipline, instruction. He doesn't just call us his children and leave us be as any good father won't. When he realizes children are going astray, he's going to bring direction, instruction in their lives, and our Heavenly Father does that. But he says there's something more. Children are benefactors. They're heirs. There's something to be received out of this relationship. Glorification, and that's the subject that brings us to this morning, that it's our glorious hope. And I'm going to make some bold statements this morning, I believe, out of the Word of God here in chapter 8 about or I believe Paul makes these statements. But I want you to understand that, that it, this context is speaking to the believer, to those who have been saved by faith through grace. So if we positionally believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we have placed our faith in him. We can claim these promises that we're going to look at here in chapter 8. And I personally feel that in, in our churches, this is an area we're weak on, in that we do not claim, boldly claim, the positional promises given to the believer in Christ. Are you born again this morning? Do you have a hope deep down inside of you to know that you are a child of God? Can you know without a shadow of doubt if you die today, you have a hope. Are you sure? That's what we're going to look at this morning because I believe we can be sure. We can be confident. We can be excited about what Jesus has done for you and I. So as I speak boldly, understand that I'm speaking to the believers, to those who are following Jesus. I'm speaking to the believer all the way from 321 to chapter 8. And you find yourself in the middle somewhere there. Maybe you've just been born again. Maybe you're just beginning to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe you're in chapter 7. It's not going very good. You find that you, 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 your struggle against sin is discouraging. But I like to make the statement in chapter 7, he's still talking to believers, albeit struggling believers. He wants to get you. You don't want to stay there. But that doesn't mean you're not born again. That doesn't mean you're not a child of God. And these promises are for you, and I believe that we need to believe these promises. We need to take them into our heart and let them speak to us so that we can start walking like a victorious Christian. We need to start thinking like victorious Christians so we can start walking like victorious Christians. Does that make sense? Seems sometimes it's where what we think that's what we become. I don't believe that's where God wants to leave us. All right, let's get into the text. First chapter 5, verse 1. This is who he is talking to. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been justified by faith this morning? Do you have peace with God, not on your own merits, but through the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay, text this morning is Romans 8, 
verse 18 to the end of the chapter, verse 39. I'm going to read verses 18 to 25 at this time. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for what we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. <clears throat> Starting in verse 18, he starts the premise out and, and says, where we're at right now is a period of suffering. The suffering of this present time, the struggle of the life here on this earth is real. He acknowledges it. But he says, take the worst things you're going through Take the most difficult things you have experienced. Take the sufferings. And I think when Paul speaks about sufferings, I really have nothing to talk about. When I think about what some of those Christians went through, the persecutions, I have sufferings, I have difficulties that I am and have gone through. But take, I don't know what your sufferings you're facing right now. He says, take all of that and put it all together. Take all the experience of all Christianity in, in the last 2,000 years, whether it be persecution or martyrdom or just regular normal sufferings of human life and lump them all together. Take these sufferings and think about them. Because right now we want to think about what God wants to do in the time to come, the coming glory. The glory that he wants to reveal, not just to us, but in us. Something that he wants each one of us to experience, to be very much a part of. He said this glory that he wants to talk about here this morning is going to be so great, it's so amazing, that it's not worthy to compare to these sufferings. The sufferings that are so real and so intense at this time, once we're in the middle of this glory and it's around us and in us and through us, I believe we'll look back and it will not be worthy of comparison. With such will be the, the, the greatness of the, of the difference. 1 Peter 4, 12-13 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange things happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. It's the way through, the way of the cross, not avoidable. Just as Jesus came down to purchase our salvation, he needed to go the way of the cross, the way of suffering. So are we called to walk in the same path. And just as Jesus experiencing returning back to the glories of heaven, also is waiting and preparing for the time to bring us there with him. Verse 19 in the New Living Translation says it like this, For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. That is uh, quite a verse to think about. King James says the creature 
can be translated as we think of just the entire creation. We think of the animals. We think of uh, the sun, moon, and stars, the plants. I think of them as, um, I think I normally think of them as um, all moral. Is that the right word? Not really thinking or moral creatures. Or, But when Paul speaks about that, he's saying that they have a longing within themselves that this creation is waiting. It's longing. It's looking forward to the day when God will reveal and roll back the curtain and reveal the glory that he is waiting to bring back to this earth. I get the sense that it, well, we will in the verse, that, that it remembers or it came from a better time and is looking back to going back to that perfection. So back to the thought of, of creation having a ability to long for. Maybe there's more going on than, than we know. And uh, where else in the Bible does that, is that revealed? I had to think of Balaam's donkey. God opened his mouth. So the next time, no farmers here, but uh, um, my son would milk the cows, and sometimes the tail came around and swished him in unpleasant ways, and he had temptations to, to be like uh, Balaam and get angry. And I thought, you know, as before we... What's going on? If God could open the mouth of that cow. Anyhow, it just that's what I thought of. Sometimes preachers think of these things. What is going on deeper than what we see? Verse 20 reveals the time when man sinned. That sin had nothing to do with that tree in, in itself or with the... With the um, donkey over here next to Adam or with all the plants throughout the garden but everything was affected by the by the sin of mankind entire creation came under its effect I believe in one way or the other in Genesis 3 it says to Adam he said because thou hearkened in the voice of thy wife and has eaten the tree which I commanded thee saying thou shalt not eat of it cursed is the ground for thy sake and sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of the life Thorns also and thistles shall bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And we can see the evidence of that all around us. Verse 21, it says that the creation has that hope because it too will be delivered. At the time of the deliverance of the children of God, if we go back to verse um, 19, remember that it is the at the moment, there will be a revealing. We'll know exactly who the children of God are at that moment. And also at that moment, there will be a releasing or a freeing of the curse, or removal of the curse. And I don't, I'm not here to say exactly how or when all that happens. I'm just saying that he's saying it will happen. And that currently, creation is looking forward to that day. Isaiah 55, 12 is a verse that describes possibly is this talking about the day of deliverance. It says, For ye shall go out with joy, be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. That's quite a word picture. The, the mountains and hills singing, the trees are clapping. We have a whole chorus going on. 
maybe a little bit charismatic for what we're used to, but it's it, the whole creation just is pulsating, waiting, looking for that release of the curse. It's over. Verse 22 uh, reveals where we're at. We are groaning in pain under that curse. We are daily experiencing effects of the curse. And we could talk the rest of the morning about your aches and pains and difficulties and whatever it may be. We, the curse is upon mankind. We, we live with it. We know it. I think about how in our world there is an endeavor to, to bring about utopia, to bring about perfection. And there's a lot of movements and pressures to get rid of um, burning of fossil fuels and all that because that's all bringing all that evil in this mankind and they're trying to create spaces I don't know if you've read some of these cities there are new cities they're creating and and it's just going to be such a beautiful place there's only one problem as soon as they put people in there it's not going to be beautiful anymore because the problem is it's the sin the curse and Sinful people do sinful things, which destroys beautiful things. That's the real problem. It's not going to happen until God moves. I was reading a story as I was studying this sermon the first time about um, the logging that was happening on the West Coast in the mid to late 1800s. When the first settlers came to the West Coast, they had been used to seeing the eastern white pine, which grew to be about 100 feet tall, and it was a beautiful tree. It's a beautiful tree. And they get out there beyond the Rockies and they come and they see a world they have not dreamed or imagined as they saw the beautiful, massive virgin timber. They found trees that grew to 300 feet tall and some of them were 20 feet across the base. Massive, beautiful timber. And it went on mile after mile after mile, thousands of square miles. Initially, they started some sawmills up on the west coast. They got the easy timber and they worked hard just to get these massive giants down to cut. And they cut and they cut and they cut for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And after they were cutting all those years and they looked at what's left, they felt like they barely made a dent. And then the California gold rush happened. And the men came from the east by droves and droves and droves of men. And after a while, the gold rush petered out and there wasn't much gold left to look. And they looked at the timber. And the timber industry started booming as the eastern and the western and the towns all over the world had a hungry thirst for this lumber they started uh, thousands upon thousands of men started cutting these trees and sawmills and ships and this huge industry broke up off the west coast and they began making a serious damage to these massive um, forests out there along the west coast there was no regulation. There was nothing except greed and industry to, to take over. And they did with little thought for the future. And really was devastating what they did. And then one dry summer, all of these dead pot tops. The, by then, the, um, the steam donkey had been invented, a big old steam engine. They'd winch trees, and they were sitting all over the mountains. And then the heat came, it dried out, the wind came, and it all lit up. And thousands, uh, hundreds, I don't know how many, much, much wood was destroyed in fires. One man living in that time said the best way to describe Western logging at the time, no other way was but a war zone. It was like being in a war as just the, the total devastation. I like cutting trees, but that kind of made me sad. Thankfully, 
the conservation efforts took over and before it was too late, thankfully God's ability for forests to revive, there are still many forests out there to be responsibly harvested today. So that was the part I had to think of the groaning of the creation. Those trees had to go through that, the effects of sin. But then we, that book went into the lives of the men that ran. Most of them were single men. There was by far more men than, than women out there, so there was not opportunity for, uh, for proper homes. They were moved into camps, uh, maybe a thousand men strong to cut this timber, and they would stay there for maybe several weeks at a time and then go into town. Those were men who lived out there, moved out there for adventure. They lived for adventure. They were rough. They were wicked, most of them. And they would uh, work hard, get killed. Um, those who survived would get back into town. They would spend their money on whiskey, on women, on whatever, often only living paycheck to paycheck. In town became uh, havens of wickedness. There was bars. There was thieves. Um, these sawmills needed ships to be taken to take this lumber all around the world. It was much more appealing to stay on shore and work. So the ships were always having problems with men jumping and running into the woods and disappearing. So they needed men to go again. So they'd have these unsavory characters on shore. The guy would come into the bar to drink. They'd put a drug in his drink. They'd knock him out. They'd tie him up, throw him on a little boat. And by the time he woke up, he was on the ship headed for wherever. And that was his lot if he survived. The average lifespan for a logger in the woods was seven years. Now, brothers and sisters, if it were not for the grace and the mercy of God, I believe mankind would have self-destructed a long time ago. But he has continued being merciful, and his greatest mercy was through Jesus Christ. But it, Paul's talking to here is that this is what we are groaning under. Verse 23. We ourselves also, even though we have this spirit, even though we, may be, we are believers, it doesn't take us out and remove us from the groan of the curse. We're still here, and we're still bearing it in our bodies. We're still waiting. We're looking for that adoption. We're looking for that final redemption, for that glorifying, glorification of this body. And I'd like to make the point here that it's good for us to think about that the fact is we are not home yet. It's not supposed to be easy yet. And sometimes I think it should be, right? It should be easy. Life ought to go better. And I also like to make the point that the problem isn't just on the outside. We can look at all kinds of problems outside. We realize that the problem's on the inside yet, too. That some of the struggles that we inflict upon is inflicted by ourselves, upon ourselves. And because we are still groaning under this imperfection, So let's not try to act and think life should just be this one blissful journey, but realize that we're waiting for, looking for, longing for, with the rest of creation, a time of perfection.
Verse 24 and 25 brings us to the thought of hope. Do you have hope? If you this morning are a, a believer and um, you, you should have a strong abiding hope, a conviction within you that someday it's going to get a whole lot better than it is right now. We need hope. You cannot live life without hope, without something to, to hold on to, to get through. We don't need just a short burst of hope. We need an abiding hope, one that's always there day in and day out in the good times and in the bad. Harold Martin in this verse says about hope, he says, Christian hope is not merely wishful thinking, a blind desire to have something happen. It is not a mere optimistic temperament or the ability to look at the right side, bright side of everything. Instead, hope is a firm conviction that God's promises will indeed materialize. It's going to happen, brothers and sisters. It's going to get better one of these days. It might get worse first. It might get a whole lot worse, but it isn't going to get, it's not going to matter because regardless of what's going to happen, we have a hope and that hope cannot be taken away. And that's what we're going to look at a little later here in this passage. Verses 26 to 30, we want to look at the Spirit's role in the life of the believer in this context. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, whom he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Let's think about the work of the Spirit here in verse 26 and 27 a little bit. The Holy Spirit within us, actively pleading on our behalf to the Father in a language that I don't understand. Able to take my needs to God beyond my ability. What's the message I get out of these verses? Is we are not alone. You are not alone. I'm not alone. That God is on our side. He desires and will and is able to and wants to to bring his children through. A loving Father working. All three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect unity with the with with your best interest in mind. We know verse 28 so very, very well. All things work together for good to them that love God. We can say that somewhat glibly at times, or we can say it very painfully at other times, depending what you're going through. All things, sickness, what about death of a loved one, what about an untimely death? What about evil? What if someone inflicts 
evil on another person. Can God use those things? Can he, when we apply that verse to everything? I believe yes. God says that he means it. But we have to understand that this passage is in the context of eternity. It's not about just the here and now. As Paul would say, if we have only have a hope in this life, we are of all men most miserable. Without that, without the hope that our groaning that we're in right now will someday be taken away and will be set into freedom and glorious liberty in eternity, yes, things wouldn't look fair and good. God is able to take the difficult, hard, even evil things that have happened to you and to father his purposes in your life for his good, for his glory, for your good. I've lived long enough to see a little bit of that come true in my life. I think of our difficult experience in Haiti and, and losing my father-in-law at age 52 as hard experiences in my life that I can see evidence that God has used for good, even though there's a lot that I don't understand. I believe I will understand more. And I believe, I don't know what you are going through today, but you need to grab a hold of this verse, and you need to believe it, that somehow, someday, even though I can't understand it, God is going to bring good out of this. Not because it is good, we don't need to call evil things good, but that He is good, and He is able to do things way beyond our ability to understand. Verses 29 to 30 has the big word predestination and all that. What, what's he talking about? I believe he's talking, giving us a glimpse of, of the greatness of God, of his, his all-knowing, his, his all-wisdom, far beyond you and I's ability to understand. Sometimes we attempt to, to uh, figure out how God works, and it's all right. So I don't think we should argue about it too much because we're probably both wrong to some degree. When we think about the foreknowledge of God and his ability to understand all things, I think the result to us poor humans should be that we go, wow, you're awesome. You're amazing. Harold Martin on this section says, there are many mysteries that lie embedded in these great verses. There are some things here that we do not understand how God would be able to predestinate or have foreknowledge of who or what and all these things. We don't, can't understand that. But our obligation and privilege is simply to believe them and to bow before the one who uttered them with thanksgiving and humility. What I want to bring out here is back to the, the hope, the confidence as a believer. Is if you notice the progression here, is that whom he did foreknow, he also did predestiny. He sent on a certain destiny. And that destiny and your purpose in life is to be conformed to the image of his son, to become like Jesus. Where am I at? For whom he did predestine, he called. And whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. 
See, God is involved in your salvation from the beginning to the end. We see our side of it, right? We see the part where we need to choose and we need to follow. And it is important. I don't want to minimize that. But this is revealing God's side of it. See, God's side of it is certain. It's sure. He doesn't almost save us or barely save us. He has provided abundant provisions for your and I's salvation. Fully abundant. And not only does he provide abundant provisions to get you saved, to get you justified, he has provided abundant provisions and grace to get you sanctified in the Christian struggle. He can help us, bring us to victory. And not only has he helped us through life, he is preparing the day when he will reveal, when he will glorify. So this verse is talking about the certainty of God's work in the lives of believers. He is fully committed, fully able to bring his children home. Now I want to think a little bit about this verse, and especially about the word predestination, how it applies to you, and how we should think about it. So generally it's referred to, talked to by Christians, and I'm a Christian here, and I'm saying, well, God, he, does he know who out there is going to be saved and who isn't? And that's what predestination is about. Wow, that doesn't make any sense. How can we have choice and all that? We go around that little circle. It's much simpler than that. God, in his will, I believe, every person he created, his desired destiny for every person on planet earth is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? If God knows beyond that, that's not my business. But when it comes to you and I, and you look across humanity, and you see that, I just met him the other day. His name was Jesse. He had tattoos all over the place, and by the time I was done dealing with him, he was in a rehab, and at the time I talked to another guy, he's headed for jail. He met the Lord in that. I, we See, I struggle. Did he meet the Lord? But do I see him as his destiny for what it could be? And that is of, a, of being a part of that, that uh, glorious uh, crowd of people in Re Revelation 7 at the throne of God giving him glory forever and ever because he's been rescued from the pit of hell. See, that's how I need to look on every living human, that he is, has a destiny that through Jesus Christ can be so much better than what they are now. Because when God created him as an innocent little baby, I believe the Bible teaches that it was his desire that he would end up. Now, does that happen? No, not to everybody. But for you and I, when we go out there and we share the light of the gospel, we should be saying, I want him and her to be born again. And when God, no matter how miserable, how far down they have gone, if they can turn to God, he has the power and he has the ability 
to totally transform them and, yes, glorify them completely. Because that is who God is. That is who we're serving here this morning. Another thing I want you to understand this morning is that your destiny is to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is your destiny. That is what you were created to do this morning. And that is what each one of us should be giving ourselves over to, to doing completely. Verse 31. What shall we say? This is the great hymn of triumph to our great king. I'll try to move over it quickly. This is just like an, an exultant praise to God, an exultant statements of what God is doing and is able to do in the lives of his children. What shall we say then? What shall we then say to these things of God before us? Who can be against us? Question. God is for you. If God is on your side, if you are a child of God, who can be against us? He has spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Who sh how shall he not with him also freely give him all things? God gave of himself, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And he went through all he did. He gave his life for you and I. And we think about that finished work, and we think about the miracle that that, that has brought into our lives. And we think back, and we rightly we should. But how often do we think about the fact that it's the same God, the same Jesus that is actively involved in your life and mine today? And the God that sent His Son who did not withhold Him from the pains of death for your salvation is also having Him sit beside Him on the right hand interceding for us. So we'll get into these verses here. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Do we believe it? Can you read these verses and say, Amen. Do you think of our, do we think of ourselves as more than conquerors? As completely able to overcome no matter what comes? Do we have peace in our hearts, assurance, and hope to get us through? I enjoy reading books of of men and women that have gone through times that are much, much harder than we have experienced. And I'm always amazed at the testimonies that come of God, God's provision of grace to them in their times of need. I do not relish the thought of persecution. I do not relish the thought of physical suffering for the sake of Jesus, and I don't think I should. 
when I think of who I am at this moment, I feel too weak to go through times like that. I, don't, I feel too, I don't, I don't have it within myself to just be an amazing Christian and do impossible things. But I believe it's so very real, God. It's a, it's a, it's a walk with him, and he, he supplies the things we need right now for what we're going through. He supplies the grace we need to live right here, today, this year, facing the things that we do face. He is able and willing and wants to bring us the whole way through. There is nothing outside of ourselves. And I, I, I say that even carefully. I, last time I was preaching this at Millmont, I said I, I, preaching is difficult to mix people. You should, sometime you should have all your bullheaded ones come to church, you know, and you really lay in on them. <laughs> and sometimes you should have all the sensitive ones come to church and you preach to them. And uh, this morning I'm pleading with you if, if you're not confident in Christ. If you're always putting a yes but in there somehow. Somehow you're saying, but, but maybe I'm maybe this. Maybe I didn't do it right that way or whatever. And I don't want to say here that people can't walk away from God by stubborn decision. Because I do believe they can. But I want us for a moment to rest and rejoice in the fact that we are children of God. And we already have the inheritance. It's signed and sealed by the blood of Jesus. And we do not need to fear. And we need to not, in fact, we need to quit. It's time to get off of the, the hesitant, maybe wishy-washy, and get bold for Jesus Christ this morning because what he has done. Be confident in the finished work on Calvary. Be confident in the fact that he wants to do something and is doing something in you today and wants to do it all the way to the end. Be confident in the fact the one that knew you, created you for a purpose, and then he called you, you replied to that call, you gave your heart to Jesus, and he justified you, he took your wickedness, your sin, he washed it away, and now his next job is to bring you the whole way home to glory, glorification. And it's his work, not mine. See, sometimes we think it's my work. And somehow I'm going to have to be good enough just so I can so barely scrape into heaven. Well, if that is the case, we're not going to make it. Because none of us are good enough. We're not able to. Not before salvation, not after. Without the grace and the mercy and the help of God, not just one time, but continually through life, we wouldn't make it. We can't do it on our own. And when we realize we can't do it on our own, we let go and rejoice that he is able to bring us through. He is able to justify us. He is able to sanctify us. And he is able to glorify us. To the believer that is yielded to him. That's what we need to do. We need to yield to give ourselves over to his complete work that he wants to do in you and I's lives. Shall we pray in closing prayer?